You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Forefront, welcome to MTV Unplugged. Uh, we are so glad. I can't. I, I can't take credit for that. Our amazing tech guy in the back. He, uh, he's, he, he, he said that's what it feels like. So, thank you for pivoting today, Roulette, and making it happen and making it possible for us to be able to meet in this space. Um, it's, it's good to be able to commune together as we are in our series on communion, <laughs> like the pun, and the cross. Uh, and so this week we're going we're gonna to talk about like what was the reason, what was the purpose behind Jesus' death. Now I know for some of us it feels like maybe it's super clear. Others of us, it feels so unclear based on the traditions that we grew up in and maybe our newfound value system or what we, what, what we ascribe to now in our faith. And so I want us to spend some time exploring that today. Uh, Austin and I recently, we went to uh, Mexico City for vacation, but also for our, one of our friends' wedding. And while we were there, um, we, we, we toured the Tatiaquan uh, uh, pyramids. And these are some of the largest pyramids in the world. And they were built at the same time that Jesus was walking the earth on the other side of the continent, or of the world, I should say. On a completely different continent, a group of people were building these pyramids. Now, as we were getting a tour of these pyramids, they began to share with us that Recently, they found this sinkhole uh, on the property, and they, as they looked down into the sinkhole, they're like, there's, there's more to this. And so they begin to dig, and they begin to find a secret passageway that led them underneath the pyramid and led them also to a, these massive rooms that were full of offerings and, and sacrifices. Now, some of these things were like gold and pottery uh, and obsidian, but they also found 200 human sacrifices that had been chained up and lined up in the inside of this pyramid upon its construction. Now, my husband was a little taken back by this uh, when, when he, he heard about these human sacrifices. And I was a little troubled by my lack of taken backness because I was not at all off-put by off human offerings because my religion has normalized human sacrifice. But as my husband, who is agnostic, he was like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. Why would they do that? And, and what, what small brains they would have, that they would think that this would be a good thing. And who would want to be offered as a human sacrifice? Because some of the things that we began to learn as we were here was that they would also have large soccer tournaments. And whoever the winner was, that's who would get sacrificed every year. And it was a great blessing because they got to go to heaven. And they got to go be with the gods. And they had no more suffering and no more pain and no more hard labor to build these pyramids. And so it was kind of hard to wrap our minds around a little bit. But as I sat with it a little bit, I also sat with what was interesting uh, as parallels to our own religion. The parallels of our own religion. But more than that, what I found fascinating was that on the other side of the world, another society, another community, another group of people who were not in any way connected to the Abrahamic faith of Christianity or Judaism or Islam uh, that later developed they somehow dis- realized or thought something. There must be gods. And two, th- those gods would require a sacrifice in order to bless them and to be looked upon favorably in their eyes. 
to send rain or to grow crops or to give them pregnancy or birth or offspring, to have protection from their enemies. It's fascinating to me to think about all of these societies and religions around the world, many that never had any connection to each other, that they all sort of intuitively come to this conclusion, there must be a God and that God requires sacrifice. All throughout history, we see this. I wonder, and it makes me wonder why this is. What, what in our collective human consciousness helps us recognize that we are basically helpless in controlling the elements around us and there has to be something bigger beyond us that is controlling something and we have somehow have to appease that thing. Perhaps in our vulnerability, we feel so powerless and we assume that something so powerful must require our devotion in order for us to deserve its love and favor. I find it striking that in all the world's major religions, they are often focused keenly on death and sacrifice. Do you find it interesting? I do. And, and now for me personally, I see it easy how Judaism and Islam and Christianity, they could all sort of be connected to one another because they all sort of born out of each other. Um, but these remote religions, it's baffling to me. Now, it's also easy for us to sort of cast judgments upon these ancient religions and faiths around human sacrifices, right? Uh, on the other side of 2,000 years after Jesus' death and Judaism has slowly weaned off of uh, animal sacrifices now, we sort of look at it and we think that's such an archaic practice, but reality is, is many of our faith and religion is still based, Christianity is still based on the sacrifice of one human being even if we aren't still sacrificing, and we are totally fine with it. It's kind of mind-boggling to me. However, for many of us, I think our Christian faith is built on, 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 on so much more, and so sometimes we, we can often sort of overlook this thing because all this other stuff over here makes a little bit, maybe a little bit more sense or maybe it aligns with our values. But what I want to hope for us to do is I want us to, hope, to hopefully sort of self-integrate these parts of ourselves. And so we don't have to be like, oh, we just don't talk about that. And we just really don't think too much about that. I can't quite figure that out. Maybe, maybe that doesn't have to be the answer. Maybe there can be a, a more of an integration in understanding the history of this. So historically, we've moved from human sacrifices. This is through human history, despite religions, and despite just limited to Christianity, but extending into Judaism and other remote religions. We've moved from animal sacrifices to human, sac to human sacrifices to various modes of just self-sacrifice now. I know that growing up in different tradition of, uh, of Pentecostalism, uh, uh, um, fasting was often viewed as a form of self-sacrifice to move God to action, to move God to do something. Well, I think that what Pastor Mack introduced to us uh, a few weeks ago when she preached was that instead maybe we could reverse the purpose of fasting and its understanding, and it's really not to change God's mind or to move God to do something, but it's to change our minds and our hearts to move us to be more intentional in what we do. Uh, and so maybe that's something, a shift for us to take. So we did this, and we, and we still do this in some ways, uh, believing that we have to offer something or someone has to offer something in order to appease God. We assign meaning to, to perhaps more of Jesus' death than we do to Jesus' life. And that's where I want us to sit today a little bit. In our faith, we assign more meaning to Jesus' death than we do to Jesus' life. In the, the creeds that, have been, that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago that have been read by churches and Christians all throughout the world, through all, all of, throughout most of Christian history, there's a part in there where it talks about Jesus, right? It says he was born of the Virgin Mary, comma, 
uh, sorry, he was born of the Virgin Mary, comma, he crucified, died, and buried, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate, all of this, right? Nothing in the whole creed says anything about his life. Literally, all that we have about Jesus' life in the creed is the comma. That's it. It's like he was born and he died. And reality is, is for me as a follower of Christ, his life is so much more important to me than his death because it is his life that emulates and calls me to live my life in a different way. And yet, for some reason, we have focused so much on his death. Not to say his death doesn't matter, because it does. But where we focus our time and our heart and our energy often reveals so much more about what we think about that thing or about that person. So what if, what if Jesus' death was simply a result of the life that he lived? What if his death, what if, that was the, what, what if that was one of many reasons of the reason that he died? Maybe it was because of how he lived. Maybe it was because of how he lived. God in flesh enters the world to both Jews and Romans. He in no way reflects the way that they understood who God was in their time in history, right? Think about it. Uh, God is an angry, displeased, upset parent who really just needs to take a beating out on somebody and to cause suffering in order for us to learn our lesson and for that God to feel better about what's going on in the world and our decisions. And maybe through that, we'll learn a lesson straight in our ways. This is a historical view of who God was, both not just to the Jews, but also to the Romans. Now, they had more than one God, but they still believed the gods were ticked and they needed to appease them. Right? And so Jesus comes into the world and Jesus doesn't look, the way he lives his life doesn't look anything, anything at all the way that they thought a God would look. For instance, God doesn't have flesh. God is an unknowable force. God isn't like a friend or a parent, something cozy and sweet and wonderful. God is distant and removed from us. God isn't loving. God is angry in that culture, in that society. God isn't poor. God has power to give and take away. God isn't vulnerable. God is the most powerful. God isn't born. God decides who and what is born. God isn't killable. God is infinite. God isn't compassionate. God is wrathful. God doesn't ask questions. God has the answers. God doesn't extend mercy and forgiveness. God brings justice and wrath. God doesn't wash feet and serve people. God is served. God doesn't, God can't be around sinful people. God separates God's self from sin. Or more of this, God doesn't sacrifice God's self. God expects a sacrifice. Jesus comes and completely blows everything they had thought about who God was. It's kind of like when you go on the dating apps. It's like when you go on, I started first on AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger. <laughs> you know, and that's how I started talking to the guys, the boys at the time, because I was in middle school. And, you know, and I just, I really just put my feet in there. I'm like, this is kind of cute. I like this. All right. Maybe I'm a little gay. And, and then, you know, eventually you do get to the point where you begin to graduate to, like, Tinder and Grindr and OkCupid. Okay I had to say that with some, like, some vibrato. Um, field and scruff and all these sort of farmers only, um, Christian mingle, hinge. I don't know what you do. I don't know what your thing is. I don't know what your, your little niche of the world that these dating apps are. But, you know, you go on these dating apps, and, and not everybody's done this, but some of us who understand, we understand. If you don't understand, ask someone else in the room. Maybe they can explain to you a little bit this week how, how, how traumatic these experiences are. And so... You go on these dating apps, you meet these people, you know, and you're like, 
oh, they seem so nice, they seem really sweet, like, I think I really like them. And you begin to paint this picture in your mind of what they're like. You paint this picture of like, I bet their voice sounds like this. I, I bet that their demeanor and their presence is like this. I, I bet they smell like this. I, I bet their personality and the energy they give off, I bet that they're this tall over me or under me. And then all of a sudden you meet them and you get across the table and you're like, you're not at all what I imagined. Like, you're not, I'm not vibing with you at all. This is not who I pictured, who I was talking to on the other end of the screen. And then all of a sudden it's like, you can't get past who they aren't because you were so stuck on who you thought they were. That all of a sudden you, you don't like this person that's before you because you fell in love with this something that you had created in your mind based on the few limited facts you had. This is basically what happened with Jesus dating all these people coming to earth. I think, I think that Jesus comes to earth and people have these shirts like Jesus is my boyfriend on and I heart God and, and they're like all for it and, and then Jesus shows up and they're like, you are not what I loved. Like you are not the Messiah that I fell in love with that I have been told my whole life and painted a picture in my mind of who you were going to be and you're not the God that I worshipped. You're not the God that my parents taught me. You're not the God that I had imagined. And so what do they do? They break up with him. Harshly. <laughs> like at other level breakup. I mean, you think you've had a bad breakup. Uh, they killed him, okay? <laughs> they killed him. So his, his, it's, it, it's interesting to think about literally the way he, his death, the reason of his death is because of his life. He didn't match up with their expectations. And not only were they disappointed, they thought it was just so disrespectful that he would pretend to be something he's not. Because this is not the God that they were waiting for to come and be their knight in shining armor and deliver them from their oppressors in this evil world. But he was what they needed. He was what they needed. I tell you what, I remember sitting in a room with a therapist and reading to her all the list of the qualities I wanted in a man. I may have said this before, and if I did, just bear with me. And she said, you wrote a list of all your own qualities. You're looking for a clone. You need somebody who, is a, uh, uh, somebody who can compliment you, not another duplicate. And I crumpled that list up, and I started just dating men that I just felt maybe drawn to, that maybe they didn't check off the list. And I met my husband, and he's so different than me. He's so opposite of me. But I'm glad I crumpled up the list because it allowed me to not have what I thought I needed or what I wanted, but what I needed. And I think that in many ways, the early church and early followers of Christ and even followers of Christ today, they miss it because they, they worship a God that they, that they want instead of what they need. And so I want us to take some time here this morning and I want us to kind of look at what are some theories throughout Christian history that talk about why Jesus died. Because I, I don't think we always realize this, that there are theories that have evolved, multiple theories, from very first century to present day about Jesus' death. And they all were building upon and trying to understand one another and in response to one another. It's easy for us on the other side of 2,000 years to just sort of like step back and be like, what we believe now is what Christians have always believed about Jesus' death. And all Christians have always, nah, wrong. No, they have not. That's not accurate. We have always been changing, always evolving. And depending on the denomination of the tradition, there are varying reasons and, and ideas and theories. And so what I would love to do today is just walk you through some of the theories. Let you sit with it. Let you know about what these theories are and how they built off of each other. And I think that will help us reconstruct some views of God that maybe would be healthier 
um, as we usher in the next 500 years of, of a more progressive understanding of Christianity. And when I say a progressive understanding, I mean a, an acknowledgement that Christianity has always been progressing, always been changing. I'm doing this finger thing today. It's the Pentecostal in me because I can't move. I want to move. And so this is what you get. This is my moving. Um, uh, uh, um, but the light and the camera and the live stream, so I'm, I'm focused. I'm going to stay right here. But like my foot keeps like, do you see it? I'm like, I'm like I just want to, I just want to, I'm just touching my toe to the ground. Um, all right. Get it together, Josh. So, Reality is here, first century, this is what the, was the first idea and the theory, the most prominent idea that scholars believe was the first reason for Jesus' death. It's called Christus Victor. It's unknown who came up with this idea as far as a church father because it was just so widely known and accepted within the early church. This was the idea that Jesus died and because he defeated evil. So basically, when Jesus died, the cross defeated evil, thereby the human race found themselves free of sin and death and the devil. And so this was just very simple. Jesus defeated evil. And then from there, in the first century, another idea began to develop from a, man, a guy named Anselm of Canterbury, who's one of our church fathers. And he came up with the idea of ransom theory. And ransom theory basically was, he said, well, maybe defeating evil isn't, isn't like specific enough. Let's unpack that a little more. Maybe when Jesus died, he actually ransoms, pays a ransom to the devil. And so he ransoms hell, and he ransoms all the future people who deserve to go there. And so the devil is paid off, and the devil no longer has power. Well, then in the third century, Origen, uh, he was like, uh, I don't know about that. Uh, or oh, I'm sorry, I, I said that the other way around. I said the other way around. Uh, Anselm of Canterbury, he believed uh, the, the idea was that you had to pay God off as the debt. So God needed to be paid off for the sin in the world. But then it was Origen who came around to the idea. And he said, well, I don't think God needs to pay God's self off. That seems a little weird. So maybe actually it's the devil that needs to get paid off. And so in the third century, the idea is that the devil needed to get paid off, not God. Essentially, this theory claimed that Adam and Eve, this ransom theory idea, uh, claimed that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the time of the fall. Hence, justice required that God pay the devil a ransom. For the devil did not realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. Once the devil accepted Christ's death as a ransom, this theory concluded justice was satisfied and God was able to be free, uh, to, to free us from Satan's grip. And this is from a, a theologian philosopher, uh, Robin Collins, who basically sums up what this theory is. Literally a theory, though. Remember that. It's literally a theory. Well, this must be this, and this must be what happened, and this is what this is. They're trying to make sense of this guy's death, who came and walked on the earth for three years with them, and then he's killed, and then he resurrects, and then he leaves them again, and goes to heaven, and then he sends the Holy Spirit, and they're like, oh, I don't understand what happened. What is this? What is the meaning of this? Why did this all go on? And we asked him a lot of questions, and he told us weird parables, and it didn't really answer all the, all the questions we have. And so what are they doing? They're theorizing. They're trying to figure this out in the early church. And I, I actually personally just need to say, I find this theory the most problematic. I find this theory to be the most problematic. And, I, and it's the theory that's often most held by the evangelical church and the Roman Catholic church. The ransom theory atonement that, that God needed or the devil needed to be paid off. I think they're prob it's problematic because God literally made us with the capacity to make mistakes. So how can God be mad if literally made us like this? 
And why would God need to be convinced to love us the way that God made us? It just doesn't make sense to me. And there's also this weird element to me of an abusive father in all of this that feels deeply problematic, that God can only be appeased if he beats the crap out of something in order to be appeased and feel okay about it because God is so angry. Now, in the fourth century, now I'll also say this, I think this is often a projection of how people view God versus the lived reality of who God really is and manifested in Jesus. This is still holding on to the idea that God is angry and God needs to be appeased instead of looking at, well, but yeah, but how did Jesus embody that? Because Jesus didn't embody God the way that you had thought God was, but just they were still holding on to that in the early church, that God was angry, that God was wrathful, that God needed to be appeased. So now in the fourth century, another idea began to develop. It was called the moral influence theory. And this was developed by Augustine. The belief that basically Jesus came to propel and to emulate and to empower positive change to humanity. I'll read this quote by Stephen Morrison. He says, The theory focuses not just on the death of Jesus Christ, but on his entire life. The cross is merely a ramification of the moral life of Jesus. He is crucified as a martyr due to the radical nature of his moral example. Within this theory of the death of Jesus, it is understood as a catalyst to reform society, inspiring people to follow his example and to live good moral lives in love. In this theory, the Holy Spirit comes to help Christians produce this moral change in the world. This is, in essence, what Pastor Angela was talking about last week when she said when she thinks of Jesus' death, she thinks of MLK. Because his death propelled further change into the world. And it empowered people to emulate his life in such a way that moved the world forward in a moral, influential way. So what if our sin wasn't the motive for Jesus' coming in flesh? Think about that with me for a moment. What if our sin wasn't the only reason or wasn't the reason, either one, but rather God's motivation for coming to earth was to show us divine, infinite love that would lead us to self-sacrificing love for, the, uh, for others in the world? What if Jesus didn't come because he was ticked? What if Jesus came because he loved us? Father Richard Ward says it like this. He said, Jesus did not come to change God's mind about humanity. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. Jesus was meant to be a game changer for the religion and human psyche of the time. So while people thought that God needed to be appeased and we needed to convince or change God's mind, Jesus comes perhaps Perhaps Jesus comes and says, no, I've actually come to change your mind about God because the way you think about me, the way that you think God is, is not the way God is in the world and is not God's posture towards you. And let me show you that while the rest of the world, while the rest of the gods in the world require a sacrifice, I will show you how much I love you by allowing my people to sacrifice me. In a world that has historically believed the gods needed offerings, Jesus turns the whole thing upside down. The whole thing on its head, and people are left not knowing what to do with it. There are two other theories that I'm not going to wade into the water for time-wise, but I want to just highlight. The 12th century, there was a, a theory called the satisfaction theory by Anselm. Basically, this was the idea that, that God needed, uh, basically, that just justice, in order for justice to be served, somebody had to be punished for bad mistakes and choices. And so this was so that justice could be satisfied. In the 16th century, there was the idea of substitutionary atonement, which was uh, by, uh, this was the Protestant Reformation, so invented by Calvin and Luther. And so they basically believed that 
that, that Jesus was punished for our sin instead of, God, in, instead of us. And so substitutionary atonement is we deserve to be punished and go to hell. And instead, Jesus did it. Jesus got the beating instead of us. And so again, this is a Protestant idea. This didn't even exist five, over before 500 years ago. And yet it's a root belief in many of our Christian churches and Christian traditions today. And we think that's what Christians have always believed. And it's not. And so as we wrap up this message, I want us to sit with this. There are many different th- theories that I have not all shared with you today. But I've shared a few with you. And they've all evolved over the last 200 plus years. And I think that some of these theories have caused great harm throughout history. And they have provided a really unfortunate distraction from Jesus' purposeful visitation to the world. But I also think that for different people at different places in time and history, these theories were really needed for them. And they really mattered to them. And they made sense to them at their context in time and history. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look back and go, well, how did people believe that? Why did our ancient ancestors believe that? And, and I'm part of that religion that thought that. Yes, but guess what? What you need now may be different than what they needed then. And in reality, our faith has always been progressive and adapting and changing to meet the needs of differing worldviews and religions and faiths at the time. And so, while people have believed those throughout time, I'm not mad at people for believing that. Because you know what? There was a time in history when that was what their whole world was about, was appeasing the gods and the sacrifices. And if it brought them deep and tremendous comfort to know that God would come to earth and sacrifice God's self for them and whatever meanings they assigned to that, and that helped them increase their love for God themselves and their neighbor, praise God. But is it the only reason? Is there only one reason? No. All throughout history, this understanding of who God is and the theories and the wonderings and the questions have always been evolving. And so I'm going to invite you not to choose a theory. You don't have to choose a theory. You can choose a theory if you'd like. But I'm going to invite you to be a people who don't just believe whatever theory you're told, because I didn't tell you what theory to believe today. I'm not interested in that. But what I am interested in is you actually asking yourself, why do I believe? And to do the work to figure out what are the different theories throughout time, and even maybe the theories that have been theorized now that make sense in our time, in our place in history as well. I'm leading a group, as Pastor Mac highlighted a moment ago, called Reconstruct, and we're going to go through a book by Richard Rohr that talks about this very thing. And so if you're wanting to go through a group with a group of people and like talk about it and hash it out and figure it out more, we'd love to have you join our Reconstruct group that starts in mid-May. We're going to meet on Thursdays, and we'd love have you, to have you join that group. But also, if you want us to recommend books to you or you want to study or read or you just want to sit down and have coffee and talk about this with somebody, know that I and the rest of the pastors, we are very much willing and able and available to journey with you because this is a very important part of our faith. One might say at the core. And it's important that we do the work as those who've come before us have done the work. All throughout history, leaders and followers of Christ, they dared to reimagine and question why this man, this divine man named Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected. And may we as a church, may we dare to question, may we dare to reimagine, may we dare to wonder and be curious of why this man, why God came in flesh to show us that love, to be that sacrifice. As we come to the communion table now,
uh, I want us to, to come to it perhaps with fresh eyes this morning as we consider uh, Christ's death, maybe, and much that I've given you to consider about Christ's death. And I want you to, to think about something that is kind of interesting. When Austin and I were, were actually at the, the pyramids, they talked about how they would often every year sacrifice someone at the top of the pyramid. And as their blood would go down the pyramid, they would leave the body on the top of the pyramid as an offering to the sun and the moon god for the sun and the moon god to consume the body as food. Now, how did the sun and the moon god consume the body? Well, if you live a body out in the sun long enough, it'll decompose, and then, oh, the sun god consumed the body. And so I can't help but wonder and think about as we come today to this table of bread and wine, if when Jesus gathered around the table with a bunch of followers of Christ, if maybe he was speaking to some of the ideas that the Romans, the Roman gods had around offering sacrifices to the gods that maybe they, they would then consume the body. And I wonder if Jesus, as he offered the sacrifices, if he was thinking about the ways in which people in that time thought about offering animals and people to God as a sacrifice for the gods to consume and to look upon lightly and to say, no longer will you offer sacrifices for the gods to consume, but instead, I offer my body for you to consume. For you come from my body, and may you take my body, and may you stop taking the bodies of others. We live in a violent world, and Jesus could have fought back as his life ended in a violent death, but he chose not to because as Martin Luther King said, violence begets violence, death begets death. And he said instead, I will let my people consume my body. The very bodies I consumed will consume me. And so as you come to the table, may you remember how radical this was at that time. How incredible and life-changing and mind-blowing for the, how they understood God. We're going to do communion a little different. You're still going to take from the side tables this morning. But as you take from the side tables, um, I want us to do a different liturgy. Because did you know that different Christian traditions do communion differently in different denominations? And so during this uh, series on communion on the cross, we're going to do communion different ways. Uh, and we're going to be exposed to the different traditions and ways in which communion is done. And so this is a communion liturgy often done in a lot of the mainline traditions. So if you grew up mainline, this may be familiar to you. And if so, be loud. Lead with us. So thus, us evangelicals and who did not grow up with this may also be able to sort of come alongside and experience this liturgy together. So the words will be on the screen. Some of this you will call in response. It'll tell you what to say back. And some of it I'm going to sing to you and you're going to sing it back. Okay? May God be with you. Lift your hearts. Let us give thanks to the God we love. It is right and beautiful and holy that we should in ceaseless joy give our hearts and praise to you. Holy and merciful God, through Jesus Christ. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. One more time. Hosanna in the highest. And so in a grateful procession of endless love and praise with the church that is and was and shall forever be, we glorify you, joining in this unending song. 
holy, 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 holy. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke the body, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat this. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink this cup, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving. And I'm going to sing this first part and you'll sing it back. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of grape and grain, making for them for us to be the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ. Amen. As you come for the elements now, the, the uh, crackers are gluten-free and the juice is juice, not wine, in solidarity with those who are in recovery. We invite you to come and receive the elements and participate in the singing of this song. All are welcomed at this table, perfect and imperfect. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.